What's up, guys? It's your host, Lopez, and I just want to say thank you for tuning into this episode today. If you're on Facebook and want to show some support with a like on the page, you can find it by going to facebook.com slash Behind Closed Doors Podcast or just searching Behind Closed Doors Podcast. You can also find it on Twitter at The BCD Podcast and on Instagram at The Behind Closed Doors Podcast. Last but not least, follow the podcast on Spotify by searching Behind Closed Doors in the podcast section to see all the amazing upcoming interviews I have to come. Every Sunday, I post a picture of a band with a hint of who my next guest is. Then on Tuesday, I post a brief clip from our video interview with a good highlight of our conversation we had. And lastly, post the new episode up on Spotify every Thursday morning. Now, on to the episode. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, yeah. sweet. So, yeah, we got a huge, amazing, legendary guest here today. He is one of the founding members and the original drummer for the famous and infamous awesome band, Ario Speedwagon, Mr. Alan Gratzer. How are you today, buddy? I'm great, Devin. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, man. I couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah, uh, you're, you're, you're too kind. Thank you. Not a problem, man. First and foremost, just want to jump off the bat and say thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Hey, not a problem. I'm a retired guy. And, uh, you know, I, I saw, well, I think what turned me around was the picture of you and your wife and kids. Uh, you look like a great family. And I thought, ah, this is going to be okay. That's yeah. So- yeah. I mean, no harm with any of this stuff. I just yeah. try to ask, you know, coming from a drummer yeah. myself, I like to look up to people and uh, definitely one of my influences was Ario Speedwagon and then finding out that, you know, you had left the band and you know that you're still willing to talk with me and just you know like i said just ario speedwagon being one of my go-tos to be able to like play and warm up with and it's just very very honoring to have just any time to speak cool. with you so thank you for that hey not not a problem i'm, I'm honored myself so so my yeah no i'm a fairly humble guy it was a a great ride we had and uh you know i've been out of the band at this point since 1988 so it's uh it's been a while uh, you know, yeah, it's been a while. I, I was in the band for 21 years and 16 albums, and uh, it was uh, certainly a, a wild, fun ride and uh, something I have no regrets about. Absolutely. So starting off with uh, just a little bit more about you, where did you grow up at? Like, where are you originally from? Okay, well, I grew up in uh, my first nine years of my life up in upstate New York uh, in Syracuse, and my dad got transferred to Chicago, so we lived in a suburb of Chicago. I ended up going to University of Illinois because we were there. And uh, that's where Neil and I uh, were roommates in the dorm. And he's the keyboard player still 50, let's see, four years later. Good grief. Uh, he, he lasted quite a while and still hanging in there. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where I started and moved across the country. Now I uh, live in California, live in Northern California. The band uh, moved from Champaign, Illinois to 
uh, LA. Then when I left the band, I moved to Santa Barbara and then moved to uh, uh, kind of the foothills around, um, we're between Tahoe and uh, Sacramento. Okay. Uh, we're up on a uh, hilltop. How often did you ever, uh, let me ask this first, have you ever heard of Michigan City, Indiana? Yes. How often have. have you, how often did you used to go there when you lived in Illinois? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Isn't it, it's up in the northern part of the state, isn't it? Yeah, it's right up. Yeah. Like when you're at Michigan City uh, at the beach, you, there's Lake Michigan there, and you can actually see the outskirts and the horizon of Chicago. Of Chicago, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, I, I know we drove through it a million times. <laughs> I, and yeah. we may have played it. You know, excuse me if we, you know, I don't remember, but we played played thousands of shows. So Absolutely, I yeah. don't know, but. Uh, that's where you are. You're in Michigan that, City. Well, I live. I was born and raised in Michigan City. Yeah, so like I'm uh, Northwest Indiana okay. right now. I'm in Wanata, Indiana. It's uh, they call it the crossroads of in you know of crossroads of Indiana. It's uh, um, Highway 30 and okay. US 421 run through it. So it's a uh, pretty common. Uh, if I had if I had south where I'm at now, I'm going to be heading towards like Indianapolis, and if I had north, I'm heading towards Michigan and all that good stuff. Okay. So I'm not that far off from nice. you. That's why when I seen that you were originally from Illinois, it's 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 crazy. I I never yeah. thought that Ario Speedway would be from based of Illinois, not that far from me. Yeah, yeah. We were seven. Uh, we started the band in '67, and then uh, in '75 we moved to LA. Uh, okay. So it was uh, eight years later. Yeah. So when you so you're the so, you were the yeah. original drummer for the band. What what age do you remember that you started to figure that hey I'm going to start playing the drums? Uh, I was four years old when I got my first little toy set of drums. They were a Mickey Mouse set because I was bugging my parents. That's all I wanted to do was play drums. I was tapping on everything. And, <laughs> uh, and they got me this Mickey. It actually was a Mickey Mouse set. And the, the heads were made out of really thick paper. And by the end of the day, all the heads were ripped and broken. And, you know, I was pretty distraught. And then a few years later, you know, my parents could finally afford a, uh, a snare drum, so I had a pad drum pad before that, which was relatively boring, uh, and then got a snare drum eventually, and uh, I thought my world took a turn at that point. What was your first yeah. official I real mean, drum set? Well, my first official was probably when I was maybe a freshman or a sophomore in high school. Um, I started three bands in high school, my sophomore, junior, and senior year, uh all i want i was kind of always the organizer i loved you know we had a i practiced down we always practiced in my basement my mom loved having everybody over uh, she loved listening to us um and that's kind of how i learned how to play drums too my dad put a speaker right above my head uh down in the basement and it was kind of a you know my dad had fixed the basement up so it wasn't just a basement it was more like a rec room and uh you know i would come home from school stack you know this is back when you had albums vinyl and i would stack three or four up in the the record player uh in the living room and then he had it wired for sound with this you know 12 inch 15 inch speaker right above my head all in mono of course and uh and i would just play along to every song and sing every song at the top of my lungs and you know basically learned how to play that way and learned also how to sing too what so type of stuff did i was the singer to? in our I would play to the Stones, uh, the you know I'd play beat to the Beatles, um, you know the Who, you know anything. The whole British invasion thing in the '60s yeah, was yep. a great time to be in high school because you know, I just <laughs> couldn't believe how great the music was, and uh, you know I mean anything, you know I mean 
Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, just all this stuff that was going on. I have, I still have all my vinyl collected, so it's not, I never got rid of it. So it's there. So, and I still play that way a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the way to do it. So towards the end, I put my buds in. Do you still play the drums currently to the day? I still do, but I, you know, you know, I've got a, you know, I don't know if you looked online, I bet on Facebook, I posted maybe a month ago, a picture of my spinning bike right in front of my set of drums. And, you know, one I use five or six times a week. The other I use, you know, three or four times a month, you know, so that yeah, just yeah, tells yeah. you how I don't <laughs> play drums like I used to. The music just doesn't strike. It's a hard instrument to just sit down and, and play. I'd rather be playing with somebody. So Yeah, absolutely. What kind of drum kit yeah. do you, did you play with the most when you were with Ario? I had I had a I had Ludwig drums even before I was endorsed by them. Okay. We were playing at Soldier Field, Soldier Field in Chicago, and and uh, somebody goes up. Bill Ludwig is here and he wants to talk to you. And uh, I turn around. There's a guy that's like my age. This is B three, you know, William Ludwig the third. And uh, he says, "Yeah, how'd you like to be endorsed by Ludwig?" And I said, "Well, I already play him." And I'm sure, of course. So, so Bill and I we had a great relationship over the years, and uh, I've always played Ludwig drums. That's awesome. I know that they're a really tough company to be endorsed by. They have a very limited roster, even to the day. I think now maybe more so than it used to be, because we used to have, uh, you know, I've got pictures even done in my man cave and stuff where, uh, you know, it's, uh, there were like, I think 60 or 70 endorsed drummers. Every would meet once a year, Bill would get us all together for a group shot or a print ad. And uh, he was very kind to me. I was in modern drummer ads all the time. And, you know, they were in also teen magazines and whatever else too. So uh, yeah, I, I got a new kid every year and I've only got two at this point. So <laughs> they all disappeared at some point. Yeah. Now, Ario Speedwagon, holy cow, man. How did that band start? Like, how did you guys come about with the name and how did the band, how did all the guys get together and how did the magic happen? Well, you know, I went after I went off to college, I, I told my mom, mom, I'm going to leave my drums here. I'm going to be a student, you know, and, you know, and that, of course, made him real happy. Both my parents graduated from Syracuse. And, uh, you know, two weeks later, though, some band called the Barbarians down at U of I said, we're looking for a drummer. And so I said, oh, I'm going to try out. So I called my mom. They brought my drums down. I, I got the gig. But, you know, I kind of look like I look now. My hair was shorter. I had glasses. And these guys, they were the barbarians because kind of that's what they look like. They were, they look like the seeds, seeds of doubt, you know, really long hair and all this. So uh, I didn't quite fit in. It looked like Buddy Holly being in the back of the band, but <laughs> I could play drums. So they knew right away, oh, they like the way I play. So anyway, uh, they, I was eventually replaced by a guy named Snake, who is an albino with really long hair, but he was the worst drummer in the world. You know, he was just terrible. So I said, okay, good luck with that guy. You know, I know I don't quite fit in. But then, uh, you know, Neil Dowdy was uh, my good friend during college, roommates uh, in the dorm. And uh, he used to play keyboards in the basement of this dorm we went to all the time. And I'm going, God, Neil, you're a great keyboard player. Let's start a band in the fall when we come back to college, come back to school. So he, I said, go home, learn the entire First Doors album, learn the Young Bloods album and a few other, you know, we were a cover band. And he came back and he played, we played Light My Fire and he played every note 
in that long seven minute solo yeah holy note for note cow. and of course I, I played every drum lick with him you know it was like so you know we were a cover band for a while we eventually that would and we were called ario speedwagon i was the i sang 90 percent of the songs uh sometimes i would come on half the time play bass and uh one of the other band members would go back and play drums and then uh and then eventually we went through i think 10 personnel changes by the time 71 came around when we got our first record deal. Uh, Irving Azoff, who now, you know, owns the world in LA and manages the Eagles and I think 200 other acts that you've heard ever, ever, every one of them, I think. So uh, uh, he was our manager in Champaign. He had a stable of about 30 bands that he was just a booking agent, basically. And we were the first one that ever got a record deal. We got kind of pretty big in our little area. We would play Indiana. Wisconsin, Iowa, all over Illinois. And, you know, and we just played sometimes seven nights a week at seven different places, which were all bars or clubs, you know, just, you know, playing four sets a night, just got our chops down. And uh, once we got through all the personnel problems uh, and we made our first record uh, back East in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Nice. So eight track studio actually. So Ario Speedwagon originally was a cover band. Yeah, in the very early, I would say, you know, three years or th maybe two years. We started in 67. We got a record deal in 71. At that point, we had all original. We got a, a Gary uh, Richreth was our guitar player, wrote a lot of songs and we all brought, helped with the lyrics and uh uh, but yeah, we started out as a cover band just because, you know, that's how bands started in college towns at that point. Everybody wanted to hear, you know, whatever. Very interesting. So, so uh, we evolved from, evolved from that. Jumping into your guys' music catalog. And, you know, eventually I made... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's a little bit of a lag. So it, it seems like there's a little... No, no, just go a little ahead. Bit go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I can tell there's a little lag. That's fine. Yeah, go ahead. So jumping into your guys' music catalog, your question, the song away, Can't Fight This Feeling is your number one played song on Spotify. Currently, it's sitting at almost 200 million streams. What, in your opinion, makes that song such a popular song? It's, I don't know. I mean, we were in the, up until then, uh, I don't know if you've listened to our earlier stuff, uh, that, that was actually on High Infidelity, which was our, I think, our 11th album. And, you know, we played loud and fast, <laughs> basically, and really didn't have, we had uh, Time For Me To Fly was on the Tuna Fish album a couple albums before then. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we, we were a rocking band, you know, and that's why our live show was so good. We made a live album, our first platinum album. This is all before High Infidelity. But then we, Kevin just said, okay, brought this song in, said, you know, I've got this song, it's going to be quite a departure, and uh, you'll have to tell me what you think. And uh, I listened to it, and I realized that, you know, this sounds like a hit. You know, Gary was a little miffed, you know, the guitar player, but he put a big kind of gnarly solo in the middle of it with some power chords going through it. And, you know, we kind of, you know, started the whole I don't know if we started the power ballad trend, but we certainly were, uh, it's something we started to do. We, we, we had grown older. We kind of matured a little bit. Uh, you know, at that point, let's see if it was done in 81, we were all in our early thirties, uh, 33 at that point. Uh, 
been in the band for a long time and kind of kind of uh, my phone's ringing. Uh, can you stop for a second? Yep, absolutely. My wife's calling, and I don't know what she wants. Um, is the very good hit, and I'm sure this is played at just endless amounts of proms and school dances. Is "Keep on Loving You." What about that song? What's the writing magic behind yeah. that great song? Oh, did you ask me? I thought the first song you asked was uh, "Can't uh, Keep on Loving You." Did you say "Can't Fight This Feeling"? The first song. I, yeah, I that remember. was the first one. Yeah, but yes. That song, yeah, take your choice. Either, either one of those songs are, you know, played at a lot of weddings. And in fact, my daughter, uh, my youngest daughter got married in Santa Barbara two years ago and her best friend read, just read and, and she had no idea was gonna do it, but she uh, did the uh, lyrics to uh, Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore. And, uh, you know, and at first I'm going, wow, I recognize these words and all of a sudden, everybody's looking at me and I'm going, Oh no. <laughs> my daughter, Mandy is laughing hysterically. And, you know, her friend has got a great sense of humor and I'm just kind of going, oh, really? But anyway, so yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm sure it's played at a lot of proms, a lot of weddings and uh, you know, that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and then the music video for the uh, role with the changes, um, you I think if uh, if I remember correctly, you were the guy with the basketball jersey on. I might, I probably did. For a while, I was wearing a, a basketball uniform because it just felt it, it wasn't hot. Yeah. You know, in retrospect, I look at it and I look dorky, but you know, I look like a Dorkenheimer. But uh, whatever. Uh, yeah, I was wearing a basketball uniform. Probably. Yeah. What was it like filming a music video like that? Well, we, you know, our biggest popularity was in the High Fidelity came out in 81. MTV started at the end of 1980. So we were MTV's babies there for a couple, three years. And we made videos all the time. Some of them were just concept videos where, you know, we just had fun and the director had an idea. And uh, I think, you know, the that one that you're talking about was more of a live video, wasn't it? I yeah, think. yep. Yeah. So I was just like playing live. I mean, we didn't, I don't think did anything unusual other than record something live, which there's lots of documentation of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now with your departure from Mario, what was the reasoning behind you departure, departing the band? Well, the last year or so, I, I was just really pretty unhappy. Uh, I just didn't want to be from away from home anymore. Yeah. And uh, it was, just hard you know I, I felt like my kids didn't have a father around uh my wife you know also she had a business she was trying to do that trying to take care of three kids and i was gone for extended periods of time and man my i don't know my my whole uh, i just wasn't into the whole music thing as much it wasn't my top priority anymore which when i was young and single of course it was so i thought about and did but once you have a wife and a kids, I didn't want to lose them. Everyone else in the band, you know, had gotten divorced or were getting divorced or had marital problems. You know, Gary ended up marrying four times. Neil ended up marrying four times. I'm going, uh, <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go down that road and it'd be the, you know, the oldest guy in carpool, you know, uh, okay, here's my third marriage and my little two-year-old, you know, whatever. So anyway so we're empty nesters now and uh, my kids are all well-adjusted happy kids and i you know i think it's just because 
you know, I, I just made a decision to, you know, be a, a better father and be yeah. home. You know, yeah, it was good when I was there, but, you know, we'd come home and then I had to go back in the studio and, and go back on the road. And it was this endless cycle. So especially when we kind of transfer from flying in a plane to uh, traveling on a bus, uh, I just, uh, I, I never liked the bus. I just yeah. thought it felt like you're in a tomb the whole time. And it took for, you'd have to, you know, you play a show for two hours and then you've got to go get on the bus for eight hours, drive all night, try to sleep, then wake up and go into a hotel room and try to sleep. I'm going, you know, it was just mind boggling. I couldn't handle it. So. No, do you still mostly take, just because of my family. Do you still stay in contact with the guys from the band now? I do. I do. In fact, I uh, FaceTime with uh, Kevin, uh, the singer, uh, two days ago. He's writing a book. And, uh, you know, so we he's been picking my brain about some things he can't quite remember. And it's, uh, you know, so, you know, we had some frank discussions actually about, you know, why I left the band at that point, because we were, you know, I wasn't happy with him because how he was acting. And I, and I told him and he was very grateful for my honesty, which, which, which was nice. So, um, so, you know, uh, yeah, but I do stay in touch. I stay in touch with Neil and Bruce, the two new guys, the guy that replaced Gary, the guy that replaced me, I don't know as well, just cause I, you know, never played with them or anything other than, you know, when I go to a show once in a while and sit in for a, a song or whatever, but, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we stay in touch and you know, I have a good relationship. That's good. Now stemming towards live performances, when you guys were on a tour, what was the day in the life like for you from start to finish on just a typical day on tour for you? Well, toward the end, you know, if we were, um, say we had a day off in the town before, uh, you know, I was a runner, you know, I'm a, this skinny dude that, uh, you know, realized I, I should be running and I, and that was a great way to explore cities. I would just yeah. go out the door and I'd start running and, you know, pretty soon I'm, I, I'm looking around and I got to ask somebody, do you know where the Marriott is? <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I was just taken off, you know? And, uh, so, you know, so that was good, but so I, you know, stay in shape. Uh, we would, you know, get to the gig maybe an hour before we have to play, go to the, we have a tuning room, we have a dressing room, go in the tuning room and just, we'd all play a little bit, sing a little bit. Um, and, you know, we had a, a girl, her name was Lizard. She took care of the food and the, any clothes that we had, you know, there in the dressing room. So that was all kind of taken care of and, you know, just kind of get dressed, play the game. It was always the highlight of the day. I think a lot of the reason I left the band were the other 22 hours of the day. I would rather be home. I, my joke is always if they had invented teleportation, I'd still be in the band, you know, if I could go home every night and go to my yeah. living room, <laughs> Hey, right from the stage bonk. I'm not right. going to be the first, I'm not going to be the first one to try that though. <laughs> now what's one of the craziest things that's happened on tour, whether it happened to you or is just something that you got to experience and see? Well, you know, this, I was in a band in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So, do <laughs> so <you know? laughs> It was wild. There was some wild times, uh, you know, and, you know, it, I wake up now at five and I tell everybody, that's the time I used to go to bed. I used to go to bed at five. Now I wake up at five, but, you know, I luckily <laughs> don't have any sort of an addictive personality. Uh, you know, I could dabble in whatever was back going on back then and yeah. just set, leave it alone and then let it go. So that was a good thing. Uh, but, you know, we did crazy things. A lot of 
stuff you know had to do. I give a, I've given more than one speech on, uh, you know, the, the travails of flying in private planes. You know, we've had so many close calls and so many bands have had trouble. And you know, like Leonard Skinner and yeah. whoever else. You know, uh, so I'm just counting my lucky stars that uh, we got through without uh, anything really serious happening. But you know, one time we got this guy. He rented us his plane, put the logo on both sides. It looked really nice. Twin engine, older plane, tail dragger, like a DC-3 or a Howard or something. But he gave us some great deal, which our you know management was always looking for. Uh, so at one point, we're flying over Kansas at about, I don't know, 500 feet, really low, on a perfectly sunny afternoon, going to, you know, I don't know, Kansas City to St. Louis or someplace. And all of a sudden, our pilot is up there flying co-pilot, our normal pilot. So this guy is in the in the cockpit. All of a sudden, he comes back through the curtain. You know, some people are listening to music. Some people are you know, asleep. I'm, I'm just kind of reading, looking around. I see him walk back. Uh, I, I'm trying to keep an eye on him out of the corner of my eye. He opens a closet door in the back, and he pulls out a machine gun. And I'm, I looked at Tom, our road manager, across from me, and I said, look at what ah, you know i'm freaking out yeah. so the this had a door in the back so he's propping his back against the seat in the back and pushing on the door with his feet to keep it open and he's got the gun his machine gun out the window out the door it's really muted because all the wind noise all of a sudden everybody's awake at this point you know so you know, so he comes back in just about a minute later, the gun is smoking, puts it back in the closet, like nothing was wrong or any, nothing's <laughs> happening. Goes back to the cockpit. I said, Tom, get up there and find out what the hell is going on. And uh, so he comes back a few minutes later and goes, well, it turns out he's a, a drug runner and he flies to South America all the time. And he's always landing uh, at, you know, in you know, dirt runways and stuff and a lot of times being chased by the federales so he's just practicing that's what he told him so i'm just practicing needless to say he was gone the next day <laughs> holy cow yeah. and then somebody <laughs> somebody showed me backstage in high times magazine uh, a picture of the plane abandoned on a runway somewhere in north carolina around the, some trees and stuff and it was found with like 30,000 pounds of pot on it or something. Holy I don't know if they got God. chased away or they couldn't get the plane off the ground. I have no idea. But so, wow. anyway. but back then <laughs> that was good press, you know, so yeah, yeah. We, we went with it. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's crazy. crazy Speaking crazy. of some of the good bands that you guys have toured with, I'm looking now, you guys have uh, looking at some tour dates here. We can bring back. Um, it looks like in 1975, you guys had toured with Aerosmith, the Doobie Brothers, Kiss, looking at Blue Oyster Cult, Rush, then Lizzie, Fleetwood Mac, Kansas, uh, Head East, uh, Leonard Skinner, actually, in 1977 with Ted Nugent, uh, yeah. 30th Special, the list goes on. What was yeah. it like touring with guys like that? Well, it was always, you know, it was always great to see other bands, and especially up close. We could always stand on stage and watch and uh and see everything back in the 70s when you know aerosmith had so many uh, you know abuse problems steven and the rest of the band were not even talking so he would hang out with us most of the time i'd get a knock on my door you know hey alan what are you guys doing you know i'm oh, okay, <laughs> nothing not doing anything yeah and then uh you know joe walsh uh at one point we did a tour with walsh 
back when buses weren't even around, we were in a school bus and it was a Joe Walker before he was in the Eagles. And uh, at one point he got into hot glue guns and I get a knock on my door, you know, Joe, Joe talks, hey, Alan, come here, I want to show you something in my room, man. So I go down and he had, you know, a chair, a floor lamp and something else, all hot glued to the ceiling, hanging upside down. You know, I go, Joe, good job, buddy. This, this is good. It's good creative work. You know, nice going. Yeah, some hotel rooms may have gotten a little bit. Uh, yeah, a little too bad about that. Yeah. So we all had, Joe we just had to pay for them. That's all. But young and dumb, you know, we were. <laughs> it's kind of a being a rock band is kind of a state of rest of adolescence actually that's so funny joe walsh hot gluing some stuff to the ceiling in hotels yeah. <laughs> he was a wild man back then he was uh you know he totally sobered up and got clean and he's been like that for 20 years so good for him now i had albert bouchard i'm sure he was a good friend of yours back in the yeah. day i had i had him on a couple of weeks ago and he had talked to me about there was a time their road manager got in a fight with their booking agent or something like that. And he punched them. And then Leonard Skinner actually wanted to go after the guys in blue Easter cult. Oh, <laughs> I guess this is back to something in the seventies, but they thought that yeah. they had something to do with it and they wanted to fight them. And long story short, they, they made up and they ended up getting jinxed and finding out that, you know, one another had nothing to do with it and they're all cool with it. Yeah. So Okay. What was your, I asked Albert this same question. What was your reaction and the band's reaction as a whole to the passing of Ronnie Van Zant and the tragic accident of Leonard Skinner? Well, yeah, no, that was a, that was a hard one to take. It was because we were flying exactly the same kind of planes and uh, had a number of close calls. We lost brakes twice on the runway. And, you know, I, I felt bad that, you know, that they had an actual crash and, you know, people, didn't live you know i thought yeah. you know what we got to be really careful here so i'm grateful and thankful that uh, you know all the traveling that we did non-stop uh turned out okay but uh yeah no that was a sad day Not now good. with you being a drummer a fellow drummer there's a movie that i sent to uh albert um i'm gonna send this same exact video it's on youtube it's a it's a movie that um Artemis Pyle, the drummer for Leonard Skinner, had made. Yeah, I know it's, Artemis. Did, there, it's a it's a recreation movie that he made. He had these actors that looked just spot on, like the rest of the guys in Leonard Skinner and himself. Really? And um, he he talks about and it, he goes to have them acting out um, the day that he's joined with Leonard Skinner, how he joined with them, all the way up to the plane crash, and it's all in just the the best detail that he could have with the plane yeah. crash and everything that he remembers just to that day and it's just a very powerful movie that i feel like somebody like you being able to you know have been able to share the stage with a, a great band like that so yeah no, i would like to see that to it's very yeah and very i powerful. talked to artemis back then uh, artemis and i talked quite a few times so he was a good dude yeah yeah interesting guy i liked him yeah now, in your very successful career, what are some conflicts and, or failures that you have come across? And what did you do to overcome that? I know you said the whole being away from family, that was definitely a big conflict. Is there anything yeah. else? Well, you know, a rock band is basically you're dealing with four or five separate egos that are all yeah. trying to get their voices heard, you know. So, uh, I mean, Gary, uh, our guitar player, and Kevin, the singer, were always kind of buttonheads all the time. I was always the guy in the middle, you know, as the <laughs> voice of reason, you know, and the mediator. And I just kind of became a mediator. So, you know, that's one of the 
it all looks like it's all fun and games and everything but you know there's it's a business side of it too and there's a musical side of it too and deciding what songs and you know what direction the band should be going so there's uh you know there's there can be complex but in the end we are all kind of brothers you know and basically you know it was like my family you know i just thought these are guys that uh i i love and always will love and uh you know it's like a family you know sometimes you argue with your spouse or whatever and it's it's the same thing so yeah absolutely now before we wrap this interview up i just want to say again thank you so much for talking with me today just been a huge fan of the band since i was about 12 years old getting into bands like i said blue oyster cult leonard skinner kiss acdc aerosmith ario speedwagon all that good stuff and nice. i'm glad i got to in, uh, get introduced to that by my mom when i was at a young age because oh, it definitely cool. turned me into who i am today with music and everything so um cool. definitely want to say thank you for making that great music and uh before we cut out of here is there anything you want to say to anybody that could be listening no, just uh, I, I'm still alive and well. You know, people uh, <laughs> wonder where I am. I mean, somehow people still find my address and, you know, send reams of uh, stuff that they want to autograph, which I do, you know, gladly. Because, uh, you know, it's always fun. And, you know, I'm an avid golfer. So, I'm you know, I'm out playing two or three times a week and love it. And, uh, you know, if we hook up with some other guys, then, they, you know, one of my playing partners tell them who I used to be, that, you know, people still kind of freak out sometimes you know or some people don't care but a lot of them do so you know it's kind of gratifying i'm proud of what we did and uh uh you know it's there forever so yeah. and, uh, it's a, a legacy that I'm, I'm i'm happy that we i was able to be a part of absolutely alan gratcher thank you so much man i'll have to send you over that te- i'll text you over to your phone that link to that video and i'll send you a picture of my drum kit that i used to have why don't you send me, a video of you, send me a video of you playing some drums? How about that? I will. Absolutely. Okay, I sure will. Cool. I'd love to see it. Thanks, All you, right, buddy. Devin. Nice, nice talking to you, bud. I'll stay in touch with you, buddy. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye.